Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my blessing and my humble and hallowed honor to be in dialogue with Professor Emerita Rachel Elior, the John and Golda Cohen Chair in Jewish Philosophy in the Department of Jewish Thought in the Institute of Jewish Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Today, we will be discussing her newly published book, The Unknown History of Jewish Women Through the Ages, on learning and illiteracy, on slavery and literacy, published in Berlin by De Gruyter Publishers, 2023. Rachel, it is... It, it is my absolute blessing to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so very much for having me. I'm very glad to engage in the conversation. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you would become as an adult? Well, I, I was born in Jerusalem in 1949. That means that I belong to the very first generation of Jewish people that were born to a sovereign state. The Jews are very ancient people, but most of their historical life, they were living in exile. They were living as a persecuted minority. They were living as a hated minority. They were living, yearning to return to Zion. That is a historical truth for thousands of years. You know, the second temple was destroyed in the year 70 of the common era. Let's say roughly 2,000 years ago and more. And ever since then, the Jews were dreaming to return to the land of Zion as a sovereign state, as a sovereign people, as people that have a place of their own. I was blessed to be born in the first generation that the Jewish people had a state because uh, the State of Israel Independence Declaration was declared at uh, May 1948, I was born in December 49, and I'm considered to be the very, uh, me and of course, and everyone of my generation, we are called the generation of the state, the first generation, Sabres. Sabres means like it's a fruit with thorns, that uh, the inside part of the fruit is very sweet and the outside part is thorn. Sabres is uh, sabres in Arabic, sabal in Hebrew. It is the sign of this generation. But the meaning of being born to this first generation is that I belong to people that never were persecuted for their Jewish identity. But on the other hand, I belong to the generation that wanted to know very much on the past, while my parents, as well as many other parents, declined the idea to talk about it. That's because Israel, the state of Israel was established right after the Holocaust. And my parents, as well as many other parents, 
where children of families that great parts of the families were destroyed in the Holocaust and the past was very painful because they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't have a word to describe how their whole family was assassinated, how miserable was the life of the community that they came from, how horrible was the helplessness of this generation on the exile in Europe between 1933 to 1945. They didn't have words to talk about it. It was too painful. Because of the silence that they chose, I was very curious to learn about Jewish history. So my family background, which again, is similar to many, many other people of my generation, my family background caused me to take great interest in the written history of the Jewish people that my parents didn't want to talk about directly. My mother would say, please don't ask your father what, what's the name of his mother. It's too painful. Don't ask me what happened to my family. We better leave it inside. So as soon as I grew up and learned to read, and I received the book, uh, The Diary of Anna Frank, when I was 12. And ever since then, ever since the age of 12, I was reading intensively on any dimension of the historical life of the Jewish people, any book that I would find. Of course, as a child, as 12 years old, it was not a systematical reading, certainly not a scholarly reading. It was just endless curiosity. And the more I read, the more I wanted to know. I didn't even know to conceptualize it as a history or as the history of the Jewish people. I just wanted to know what had happened that they didn't want to talk about. So that is the background that brought me to do what I do as a reader, as a curious reader of the silenced past of the my parents' generation and my curiosity about the family of my parents and the earlier, earlier family, like grandparents and grand-grandparents and the places they lived in, all of that, it was covered with silence because it was too painful to talk about. Thank you for sharing. What, what inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Well, I thought that it is necessary to know that half of, half of the majority of the human being is not part of the conversation or was not part of the conversation until the 20th century. That means that in every place in the world, we have men and women and other people, but the majority is divided for men and women. All books, nearly all books were written by men. All laws were were formed by men. All scales of values as law and order and morality and power relations, all of them were dictated only by men. The exclusive right for knowledge and authority that only the male part of the population had brought me to the sense of necessity to learn why that had happened. Why is it like that? Now, I belong to people that believe in pacifism, that would rather choose peace above war, that choose social, uh, social comfortable life rather than dictatorship. Most people, of course, would choose that. But very few notice that the legal system that we live under was only man-made. Women were never asked, do they prefer 
war upon peace? Do they want to expand and take over and uh, colonize all of that? They will never ask. They were enforced to be part of history that they had no share. I think one cannot over-exaggerate the importance of this lack of half of humanity from the conversation of culture, of history, of creativity, of science, just for one short example, women, the universities in the world, in universities in the Western world, were funded in the very beginning of the second millennium. Oxford, Cambridge, University of Paris, we're talking on 11, 12, 13 centuries, like 1,000 years ago, until the 20th century. Most universities would never accept women. A whole thousand years, a whole millennia, excluded women from the conversation, for contribute to science, for learning, to gain authority, to answer their curiosity, to, have, to define their human freedom and human choice and human respect. Women were denied from any part of the best of human creativity, knowledge, and authority because they were considered to be subjugated to the life, to the law of men. And it started very early. It started in the biblical, uh, it started in the biblical time when, when God in the midst of the Garden of Eden in the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis, says to the woman after the sin of after the sin uh, in the uh, Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis three sixteen, it is said, "I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you." Now, if we look into that, I don't want right now to discuss the natural uh, pains in childbearing and that, that men uh, describe this divine punishment, nor would I like to elaborate on the painful labor that are involved with giving birth to children. I would like to discuss only the last part of the sentence, the horrible one and he will rule over you. That is the only foundation of the patriarchal order. The patriarchal order, the word patriarch is a composition of two words, pater, father in Latin, and arche, alche, which is a Greek word uh, reflecting ancient laws, ancient government, ancient rule. The word anarchism is the opposite of arche. Anarchism is against the arche, against the ancient order, against the ancient rule, against the ancient authority. So patriarchy is the ancient authority, the unquestionable rule and unquestionable authority that men hand over women. Because of this short sentence, in the Bible, in Genesis, in the midst of the Garden of Eden, and he will rule over you. It is horrible because those few words are the judicial foundation of the discri dis discrimination of women for thousands of years. It is the Jewish Bible, it was copied into the Christian Bible, it was copied into the Muslim Quran, 
That was the patriarchal order in all the Western world from antiquity until the 20th century. It should be reminded time and again that women received the right to vote, the right to be considered as citizens, the right to be considered as equal human beings only at the 20th century. What are the primary themes in your book? What story, quote unquote, does your book tell? Well, my book is involved in the understanding of history of women. And I start by describing the history of education because the way to rule over women was first and foremost to deny from them the right to acquire knowledge. Of course, in antiquity and in the medieval time and pre-modern time, most men and women were not uh, did not have access to knowledge. The one exception was in the Jewish uh, in the among the Jews in the Jewish people history, because Jews in the ancient time were commanded in the Bible to teach older children to read. I re I repeat. Only the Jewish people were commanded by divine law to teach all their children to read. The way that the sages interpreted that command was that only the male children have to read and not to include the women children. Now, girls were not part of the reading duty, while all boys, all youngsters, and all Jewish men had to engage in reading. That was the major meaning of being a Jew. All Jewish male had to learn to read. All Jewish women were denied from the right of reading. Now, of course, like any generalization, there were exceptions. There were daughters of scholars who would be taught to read. There were daughters of printers who would be taught to read. But the majority of Jewish women were denied from the opportunity to be sent to learn to read on the expanse of the community, while all Jewish boys, all Jewish youngsters, and all Jewish men were expected to be involved in reading and acquiring the capacity to read to read from the very first decade of their life, um, preferably from the age of three to the age of 13, or as soon as the child was ready to engage in playing with letters, and then in acquiring reading, and then in acquiring reading in the uh, Bible and in the uh, prayer book, and then acquiring Aramaic, which is another uh, Semitic language that the Talmud is written on. So reading and writing were part of Jewish education for boys, while those two things were denied from the majority of Jewish women. So I start the book by explaining the background for the enslavement of women during history. Uh, rule number one was don't allow them to read. It should be noted that the other rule that was not allowed to learn to read was black slaves. Slaves were not allowed to read in, let's say, in the United States before the Civil War because the masters knew very well that as soon as a human being, whether a man or a woman, is uh, allowed to learn to read, they, either men or women, would not agree to be enslaved. So illiteracy was preconditioned to uh, enslavement. I elaborate much on the comparison between men who were enslaved and women 
who were not formally enslaved, but they were enslaved because they were exactly like slaves. They had no right to approach the court. They had no right for inheritance. They had no right to study, to read and write, and they had no sovereign uh, state. All of that is true for slaves and for uh, and for women. The only difference is that an owner or master of slaves was allowed to uh, to sell his slave because he was his property. A man is not allowed to sell his wife, but he's definitely allowed to beat her and to manipulate her by violence exactly as he was allowed to do that with his slaves. So the framework of the book is how to trying to clarify what were the ways that women were enslaved, how they were kept out from the cultural conversation, how they were kept out of history, how they were not allowed to be part of any public engagement, any intellectual engagement, any legal engagement, with the one exception, rare exception mm. of women who were queens. There was no other woman who could be a ruler, a judge, a scholar, a student in any meaningful way until the 20th century. In the Christian world, there was one exception. Nuns uh, were women who chose to engage in literary and intellectual life and religious life, not only in the life of housewives. Other women were expected to get married in a very early age, most of historical times, and were expected to bear children all through the uh, years of uh, possible fertility, and were expected to be housewives, mothers, and those who are exclusively responsible for all the duties of keeping a house and raising a family, not allowed to inherit money, not allowed to keep the revenues of their own work at home, if there are some. If women have time, let's say, to weave or to do embroidery or to cook, if she sells what she doesn't need for her own needs, the money would be the money would belong to her husband according to Jewish law. So women were penniless. Women had no property. Again, according to the legal system, women had no independence. Women had no access to literacy. They were like slaves. And I elaborated at length on each one of those conditions. What was the legal background for marrying women at the age of 12, 13, 14? What is the meaning of giving uh, birth at the age of 13 or 14? What is the meaning of being uh, enforced to be married by matchmaking, not having the right to choose your own partner? On each one of those questions and many answers, I elaborate in great detail in order to understand how did men enslave women. Who do you consider the ideal reader and the ideal audience for your book? For whom did you write this book? I wrote the book for any curious reader who is interested on historical questions and on intellectual intellectual questions and on the framework of the connections between history, law, uh, education, and social position. I think that the book is relevant to any reader who is interested in the constitution of society, in the way that how does power work, 
who are in the margins, who are in the center. How do you acquire central place and by marginalize others? Although the focus of the center is Jewish women, it's definitely not only on Jewish women. Women of different cultures and different uh, religious backgrounds, especially of the Western world, of the monotheistic religions, uh, are mentioned there. Uh, when I say Western, I mean European, North African, American, uh, Asia, uh, the Western part of Asia. And women of, this, of those cultures and religions are mentioned here. Women who were part of the Jewish religion, of the Christian religion, and of the Muslim religion. I know much less on the Far Eastern religions, and I don't discuss them. But on the monotheistic world and on the Western culture and on the patriarchal culture, I elaborated in great detail. What does your book reveal about literacy and illiteracy in Jewish history? Well, my book discusses the importance, the vital importance of literacy in Jewish history. The Bible commands us to be engaged in the biblical written tradition day and night, every day. The sages said that it refers only to men and not to women because women are enslaved to their husbands to do whatever they need or require or command. So literacy was the major, uh, the major commandment for all Jewish men from early age until death. No one was exempted from it. We never had, uh, like in feudal order, we never had simpletons who didn't know to read and clergy who know to read and nobility who sent their children to read. We never had anything like that. In the Jewish people, in its ideal order, and according to historical evidence, in every community, in every place in the world the Jews live, all the little boys were sent to learn for 10 years from the expansive community. After 10 years of acquiring the Hebrew language on top of their mother tongues and the local uh, uh, the local geographical language, as children, they had three languages. They had the Hebrew language that they had to learn, and they had the mother tongue, that their mothers talked to them until the age of three every day, and they had the local. So let's say if we're talking, if we're given an example, a woman who lived in the Jewish community in Spain would talk Spanish, Jewish Spanish, to her children. It would be called Ladino. The child would know Spanish of the area where Castellan, Castellano, of the local area that the family lives, and he would know Hebrew as the language of the fathers, as the language of the books, as the language of religion, as the language of culture. So all women would know spoken language of the geographical uh, region where they where they live. Women who lived in Germany would be speaking Yiddish, which is a combination of German and Hebrew, ancient German and biblical Hebrew. Uh, women who would be uh, living in North Africa would be speaking local Arabic, local Judeo-Arabic. The, in the streets, the children would hear local Arabic of the particular geographical region, and in school, every child would learn Hebrew. So they would be multilingual. And that made, that had a great effect on Jewish history and Jewish life because 
Jews who knew to read and write, usually at least in one language, often more than in one, would be very uh, demanded in various occupations that need literacy and the capacity to read and write. So, for instance, when feudal order started or when urbanization started, and there was a great need for people who know to read and write, Jews would be part of the local uh, bureaucracy much before they would have any right to be such people. They would be required by their uh, literacy and by their writing and reading capacity, which, in, which involved also the capacity to calculate. When you read the Bible, you learn to calculate. Parts of the Bible are really pure arithmetics, and when you learn to read the Bible, you learn to add numbers, to divide numbers, and to multiply numbers, and you have a good basic perception of what is arithmetics. So, literacy was fundamental, fundamental for the life of every Jewish man, and it was fundamental, no less, the lack of literacy was fundamental, no less, in the life of every Jewish woman. Now, in order to set things straight, of course, like in any other community, there were Jewish boys, youngsters, and men who did not succeed in acquiring reading and math. There, in every community, regardless of religion, there are people who are dyslexic, who are dysgraphic, who are incapable to acquire the capacity to read and write. However, the only community that taught all her children to read was the Jewish community. The part, the percentage that acquired this capacity was the leading percentage of the community and the share of knowledge was equal. Every child had an equal opportunity to learn to read because the community was responsible on funding the educational systems. It doesn't matter if you call it cheder, which means just a room, or you call it knishta, a room in the synagogue, or you call it sla, that's in Arabic, the place that, uh, of prayer and study. The places of study had different names, but they were always the same. It's a place where it was a book of the Torah, a book of the Bible, usually manuscript, that you would teach the children to read from as soon as they acquired the ABC. So uh, reading was a demand as a condition, more than a demand, it was a condition to be a member of a Jewish community in every Jewish community in the world. All boys had to be sent to school to learn to read, while all girls were left at home to help to the mothers. So literacy and illiteracy were divided half-half. Half of the community was literate, half of the community was basically illiterate. There were exceptions on the female side as well. There were women who were taught to read privately by their fathers or by their brothers or by their higher teachers when history demanded that uh, particular professions, which were uh, home professions or family business, would need the help of, uh, of daughters and youngsters and girls or women uh, in order to keep the business, the business at work. So, for instance, Daughters of printers from the 15th century onwards would be taught to print, uh, would be taught to read and write in order to help in printing. Daughters of people who were doing, uh, were working with uh, small banking and with pawns, uh, where you give 
some material, uh, some uh, objects uh, in return to getting some loans. And you always have to write the description of the object and the amount of the loan. Uh, don't yourself bankers, uh, and we're talking on very small bankers, it's not like big bank, it's small home banks, uh, would be taught to read and write and calculate as part of the need of the family. But that would be a private engagement, not a communal engagement. Most daughters did not know to read and write with few uh, with, with few exceptions in particular communities. But in most of communities, in most of the communities in the Muslim Jewish world and in most of the communities in the of the Jews in the Christian world, most of the women were, did not have any access to scholarship until the 19th century. In what ways have Jewish women suffered differently than men throughout history? What are the different forms of female suffering that Jewish women endured that males did not? Well, in the Jewish community, all men were equal according to Jewish law, and all women are equal to women. Let, let me rephrase it. According to Jewish law, there are no social status as like in the feudal order or in the Christian world. We never had nobility. We never had church. We never had popes. We never had feudal uh, owners or uh, social stratification. We had, on principle, all Jewish men are equal to all Jewish men, and all Jewish women are equal to all Jewish women from a legal point of view. One exception is the Levitical tribe that have special obligations. No more rights, but no more obligations. The Levitical tribe has a special position of chosen by God for holy service and teaching the people to read, to read and they have special position. But other than the Levitical tribes, all the other 12 uh, tribes of Israel, all the men are equal to all the men, all the women are equal to all the women. So why? what was the nature of suffering of Jewish women that Jewish men didn't suffer for? First and foremost, they were not independent and sovereign. They were always, always under the jurisdiction of their father or under the jurisdiction of their husbands. They were never free, never, not for a second. The only way a woman would have freedom and sovereignty was if she was a widow and there was no husband on her and no father on her. Only widows were relatively free. But what does it mean that they didn't have sovereignty? I'm talking now only according to the books, not according to reality. According to the Bible, a father is allowed to sell his daughter if he is in a position that he needs to pay debt rather to be enslaved himself. So he has the right to sell his daughter according to his judgment. He has the right to uh, engage his daughter in marriage since the age of 12, she is not to be asked. He commanded her to get married from the age of 12 according to his own discretion, and he is allowed to marry her even earlier if there is a need. So the idea that the young girl, let's say 12 years old, is ready to be married according to biblical law and is according to biblical law her father is dictating the identity of the uh, bridegroom makes women to suffer 
a great deal from lack of freedom of choice, lack of freedom of movement. The Jewish law uh, insists on a great deal of modesty. That means that women are not allowed to go in and out from the house as they choose, but they have to behave according to the local social norms. For instance, Maimonides in the 12th century says, a respectable woman may leave the house only twice a month, once to visit her parents and once to go to the ritual base. Any other out of the house is provocative, is undesired, it may make her into a woman of bad name and so on and so forth. The point is not how many times she's allowed to get out. The point is that she is under supervision every day of her life. Supervision by her father, supervision by her husband. And women suffered from this lack of freedom. They were suffering great deal from their complete illiteracy, and which meant uh, total dependence upon their fathers or upon their brothers or husbands for any knowledge which require reading and writing. You know, nowadays we take it for granted that everybody knows to read and everybody is capable to write. Doesn't matter the level of reading, doesn't matter the quality of writing, but basically ever since there is a mandatory education law in all over the world, everyone knows to read and write unless he or she has uh, particular limitations, but the absolute majority of the population knows to read and write, but that was not at all the case in previous centuries. Most people did not know to read and write, and as I said time and again, in the Jewish community, all men had to know to read, and most women were not were denied the right to engage in any kind of schooling on the public arena. And schooling on the public arena is mandatory because you're not only reading, you're not only learning to read, you learn to read and engage in conversation about what you read. You're learning to read and to interpret. You learn to read and to translate. You learn to read and be part of the intellectual conversation of the class. That was the mandatory expectation from any kid from the age of three to the age of 13 as mandatory. And anyone who wished, any boy, regardless of his economical situation, any boy who had desired to continue to learn his studies in the yeshiva, in the cloys, in any higher education form, would be highly encouraged to do so in any possible circumstances. So women were denied from the highest value of the community, which is education and intellectual achievements. Women were denied any access to the public arena. They were never part of leadership, of legal discussion, of authority, because they never had any access to authors. Authors and authority goes together. Having access to previous authors, meaning to previous books, enables you to gain authority. Women who were not allowed to read and write couldn't participate in any public discussion which involved reading, writing, documents, authorization, authority, books, and so on and so forth. So just imagine all the laws in the world, with the exception of divine laws, all the laws in the world were written by men, only by men. All the great literature of the world, let's say, really, I won't say all, but let's say 90%, it would be fair 
in the general literature of the world, you know, we have one Sappho and we have one uh, Japanese book, uh, the uh, Book of the Pillow or the Stories of Genesi, but all other Japanese books would be written by Japanese men, exactly as all great Russian literature would be written by Russian male authors. Only in the 20th century, we would find Russian female authors as as well as in any, let's say, the end of the 19th century, the 20th century, most of world literature would be written by men, exactly as all legal writings were written by men. All judges were only men. All uh, authorized engagement or all scholarly engagement would be only by men. So just imagine how, how did women who had intellectual curiosity, who had scientific curiosity, who had different questions about life, about society, about history, about law, about economy, how they would felt when they were denied of all of that. That was a painful, but that was only part of the story. You ask in what way they suffered. They suffered tremendously from the fact that they had not, they had no choice about the age of marriage. They had no choice about the age of giving birth. They had no choice about the number of children that they should nurture. They had no choice about the amount of housework that they had to do. It was all legally written and legally in, uh, imposed on every Jewish woman. And many of what I've said, many things that I said were true also to Christian women and to Muslim women. But I'm talking basically on Jewish women and then bring examples and um, parallels from other cultures, but that was the situation. Remember always, women in the U.S. had the right to vote only in 1920, if I'm not mistaken. Women in England had the right to vote in 1928. Women in Switzerland had the right to vote and the right to have an independent bank account only in 1972 and not in all the cantons. Women in France were allowed to board the train without a written consent of their husband only at 1945. That was the year that they were practically enjoyed the right to participate as vote. You know, people often uh, think that the French Revolution gave French women equal rights. Never. The French Revolution talked on liberty, fraternity, uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity only for men, not for women. The French women uh, received the legal right to vote at 1944, but because of the war, they could practice the right to vote only at 1945. Never before a French woman could participate in any election of any kind because only the men had the right to elect and to be elected. And when I say that they had no right to participate in election, it means that they had no right also to be elected for any meaningful position. So women entered into history in a meaningful way only in the 20th century. Only any other century before, most women, were denied from any position of authority, from any intellectual opportunity, from any literary equality, from any educational equality, any legal and authoritative position, 
and any other value that you can think of. Women were erased from history as human beings. And that I wanted to correct when I wrote my book. How does your research advance our understanding of misogyny? Well, misogyny means hatred of women, fear of women, making the woman as other. Misogyny means that the exclusion of authority of knowledge is kept for men alone. But how do you do that? How do you keep knowledge only to yourself? How do you keep legal rights only to yourself? How do you impose on your daughters to uh, get married at the age of 12 or 13? How do you do that? You constitute mythology. You constitute legal system. You constitute social norms. Only, all of that only by male, which would put women under jurisdiction of men in a very uh, discriminative way. Men discriminated women on every aspect of life. They did not allow them to inherit. They did not allow them to make money. They did not allow or any money they made they had to give to their husband. They did not allow them to vote. They did not allow them to read and write. They did not allow them to be free of the threat of violence. Now, in all cultures, and legally so, and it's written, Men had the right to impose this will on his wives by the whip. Men were allowed to beat their women for any disobedience, for any improper subservience, for any refusal to do whatever she had to do. The idea that men are commanding women what to do and how to do was vital in male history, and only male wrote human history. They erased the woman. They didn't care for their well-being. Misogyny means that miso is hatred, geni is women. Like gynecology or misogyny, miso, the hatred of women. Why they hated women? They were afraid of them. They wanted them to be enslaved for all their needs. In order to gain their own freedom, the male freedom, they had to have, they had to enslave the women as housewives, the women as cleaners and cookers and child child uh, uh, rearing children and so on and so forth. Instead of treating them as equals as human beings, they treated them as slaves. In order to treat them as slaves, they would write mythologies which describe the horrible nature of women. Now, they started in antiquity. The Bible tells us a short story about Adam and Eve that everybody is acquainted with. The basic story is that God had commanded Adam to eat from certain trees and prohibited him to eat from other trees. The woman was not around where this command was given, and she was associated with the snake that at that time had the capacity to talk. The snake told her that she is allowed to eat from a certain fruit in the garden. She ate, and when she ate, her eyes opened. She understood all of a sudden that there is many, many dimensions to life and to the world and to nature, that she did not, she was not aware of them before. It's the 
opening of mind, the opening of consciousness, the opening of wisdom. That is the basic story and that she gave to Adam and because she gave the fruit to Adam, both of them were uh, both of them were punished by God in the book of Genesis uh, chapter 3. The snake was punished, man was punished, uh, man was punished that he would have to work all his life. There's no more free food in the garden. Women was punished according to the quotations that I read before with painful births, with hard times of deliver children, and with complete obedience to her husband. And he will rule over you or he will rule over thee is the foundation of the patriarchal order. How would he rule her? Now, let me remind one more time. This is a mythology. It's not legal. It's a myth. It's not law. So it's not a divine commandment that it is a holy mythology. In mythology, you have the right to tell stories that could not be verified, that could not be judged, because whatever had happened in the very ancient past could not be reenacted. We don't have speaking snakes. We don't have access to hear the divine commandment. The, we don't have access to the thing that took that took, uh, that took uh, part in the garden. We have only the curses, and the curses are severe. For the woman, is especially severe because of the he will rule over him. But men were not happy with the beginning, with, with the limited version of the story. They elaborated it more and more and more. They said that the woman was not only talking with this name, she copulated with him or he copulated with her according to the elaboration in the Apocrypha in the ancient literature. The son of this population is Cain the murderer. Hevel was the son of Adam. Cain uh, the murderer. Cain was the murderer. Abel was murdered and Cain uh, was the murderer. Then Eve was not only a sinner, she was a traitor. She was described by myth, uh, I underline again, by myth, not by any direct uh, law. She was described as a sinner, as a traitor, as a woman who is easily to be seduced. Now, the mythological, uh, mythological description of Eve and her elaboration on Lilith as the first Eve and so on made all women to be punished on the sins of their first mother. So misogyny is the form hatefulness of the way men were afraid for women are describing the great danger that women entail. And the greater the danger is, the greater is the fear of disobedience. The greater the fear of disobedience is, the greater the misogynic behavior is, the greater is the violence, and so on and so forth. So what started with the mix, with Eve, the sinner, who had relations with the serpent and so on, that becomes to be the basis and foundation of all social norms in ethics towards women. What new insights does your research reveal regarding Lilith, the female demon depicted in rabbinic in Kabbalistic texts, you alluded to her. Can you say more about her? Yes, happily. Now, Lilith is a very ancient figure. 
uh, which derives from the ancient uh, Mesopotamian myth. You know, a whole world of uh, demons was created parallel to a whole world of angels. The world was divided to three, the heavenly realm, the earthly realm, and the under-earth realm. In the heavenly realms, there are God and angels. In the under-earth realm, there is the Satan and the ghost and Lilith. And in the on earth are men and animals and so on and so forth. The ancient perception all over Mesopotamia and in the uh, ancient world of Greece is that there are evil powers and there are heavenly powers and men and women are affected by them and are reflecting in one way or another different traits which are ascribed to the uh, devilish part of the uh, devilish part of the underworld if we're talking on women and the heavenly parts of the upper world if we're talking on men. So Lilith would be the female representation of the underworld, which would be the description of all these things that men are afraid of and women are afraid of. Women are very much afraid of losing the baby that they gave birth to. So Lilith is described by men as a she-demon who is eating babies, who is uh, devouring babies. So every woman who gives birth naturally is very fearful uh, that anything bad would happen to the baby that she just gave birth. The she-demon described by men is a Lilith who is devouring babies, causing women to be uh, to die at birth and so on. But what other things? Lilith is right. She is described as the incarnation of temptation. She is described as naked, as having wings, as having very long red hair. She looks like the ideal, uh, unrestrained uh, sexual temptation. But the, everything in her descriptions, which are, which are. Um, endless in ancient mythology of the Mesopotamian mythology, of the Jewish mythology, she represents what people are yearning to and what they are afraid of. She's described as the one who is castrating men. That reflects the male part. She's, she's described as killing babies. This is the men and women sphere. She's described as the most seductive creature that all men can fall into her seduction. She's described as a transformative figure. She can tr be transformed from male to female and from female to male. She can kill everyone. She's a special threat for women who give birth and for babies. And she's a special threat for men who would copulate with she-devils and would give birth to ghosts. So all of those stories were part of a social system of supervision on things which are being done privately. The, the she-demon Lilith was described as the uh, archetype of all evil things and of all desired things. What was the worst thing that she could do? She represented the capacity of flying. She had wings. She could run away from being obedient to men. Men were afraid that women would run away from them and would stop being disobedient to them. So they would say on any disobedient woman, oh, she's a lily. 
she is a lyric, she is seductive, she is sinful, she is, uh, she is lawless, she is, uh, I, I like the word, uh, a, a woman who behaves in a very unrestrained way. Anyhow, she, she is described as all the opposites of the appropriate social order. But most of all, men were afraid that women would rebel. So she was the rebel. She was the one who is running away. She's the one who is uh, talking with angels. Then the myth was evolved and evolved and evolved in various ways. And soon enough, in the Christian world, women who were charged with being witches would be called Lilith. They are the partners of the devil. They are coming from the underworld, the world of death, in order to threaten the living. Now, the myth was soon enough transformed into legal procedures. Thousands of women were burned alive under the charge that they are lilies and witches and evildoers and sinners, because the myth that you are telling would be the background for the legal procedure that you are choosing. Uh, when the, if I may give a faraway example, when Hitler decided to get rid of all the Jews, he revived the ancient myth that the Jews are those who caused the failure of the First World War, as the German emperor said, First World War, while they were really excellent soldiers and got many signs of uh, appreciation of their being great soldiers. The loss of Germany was interpreted by the emperor as the reason of the betrayal of the Jews. And we describe them with the phrase, they are putting a knife in the back of the nation. Hitler revived this myth a couple of years later. The loss of the world of the First World War was in the second decade of the 20th century. Hitler came to power as 1st of January, 1933. He took the phrase that the Jews are those who put the knife in the back of the nation, and he elaborated on it before he decided with his, uh, with his uh, partners that it's time to get rid of all the Jews and to exterminate them. This is always a background for illegal actions and for legal actions. Hitler legally was working according to the law. He was elected legally. He had the right to enact uh, laws according to his uh, understanding, and he enacted laws to exterminate the Jews after elaborating on the myths of the traitors Jews and all the old anti-Semitic types. Women were charged with being Lilith before they were burnt alive, and any any easy church, any easy search on the history of witch hunt in Europe would reveal that immediately. They were charged of being witches, they were charged of being ladies, they were charged of copulating with the devils, they were charged with killing men, with castrating men, and all the rest of that. But elaborating on this is the background of killing and uh, putting men on, putting uh, people that you wish to get rid of or that you wish to enslave into great danger. So never relate to myths as unimportant or insignificant. Always relate to myths as a very good reflection of where fears are, of where desires are, of where 
evil intentions are, there are no innocent mythological stories. Every mythological story, especially those who are concerned concern women, every mythological story has an intention behind it and someone who is paying the full price. How were witchcraft, witches, and bewitchment understood in different phases of Jewish religious and literary history? Well, interestingly enough, uh, in the Bible, in the book of Exodus twenty-two seventeen, it is written, you shall not allow a witch to live. In Hebrew, there is no neutral terms. Uh, every... Every verb has to be conjugated according to male, either male or female. We don't have not. It has to be conjugated uh, in a way that indicates precisely whether the subject of the sentence is a man or a woman. In the Hebrew Bible, it is said in Hebrew, lo in English, and you shall not allow a witch to live. Witch is always a woman. There is no man witch. Witch is always a woman in Hebrew. And in the English translation of the Bible, the very, very early English translation, and you can find it on the Oxford Online Dictionary, uh, the word witch was chosen to translate the biblical uh, image of the women who help to give birth. Women who are like nurses who give birth, not, not that they themselves are giving birth, that they help other women to give birth, where it says that she finds Pua, were Hebrew uh, nurses. Uh, it is said that they were witches. So ever since then, the nurses who were helping women to give birth were suspected to be witches. Words are potential. Words are not, not, only, not only having potential, words are dangerous when they are mistranslated, misused, and used to blame others. The women who are in the biblical story are very good women who are helping to give birth uh, are described as witches. And as I said, you can find it in any easy search on the origin of the word witch in the uh, English language in the translation from the Hebrew Mechashitza. So, Please remind me what was the uh, the whole question. Can you tell us more about witches, witchcraft, and bewitchment in Jewish religious history and Jewish literary history? Thank you. So witches were connected only with women. There is no, uh, the death of witches, which is declared in the Bible as a commandment, was the legal foundation for the persecution of witches in Europe millennia later. It started very early when the uh, when there was a papal um, declaration that uh, a pope is very distressed to hear that certain women are accused with doing witchcraft and thus he is appointing a committee to uh, investigate and persecute and punish women who are charged with witchcraft. Now, there is no such thing as witchcraft. There are mythology of witchcraft. There are descriptions of witchcraft, but human beings of regular kind are not capable to make uh, 
lightning and thunderstorms. They are not able to affect the river overflow. They're not able to affect horrible eruptions of, uh, of mountains. But those were the kind of changes, that, the kind of uh, natural phenomena that women who were described as witches were in charge with. So they were not only... Uh, what is the professional name for women who help other women to give birth? Midwives. Thank you, thank you. Midwives, yes. So it was not only midwives who were in who were suspected to do witchcraft and to be witches, which is let's say a little bit understandable, only in the sense that they are the only women who are involved with life and death and this on a daily basis, and they are the only women who are going freely between all houses before there were hospitals. Before women gave birth in hospitals, they gave birth in private houses. And the uh, midwives would be going all the time in every house. And they would know things that other people wouldn't know. And they would have access to life and death in a very special way. So uh, it was very easy to charge a midwife with things that you could not charge other women. So they would be number one to be suspected on all kinds of evil things. But the general... Uh, the general charge against women witches, and there are only women witches, there are no men witches, the general uh, charge against women witches would be that it's because of them that hail fell down and ruined all the apples. It's because of them that the river overflowed. It's because of them that the Vesuvius erupted. So horrible natural phenomena, which no human being of any capacity can affect, would be associated with witches. And anyone who wanted to, anyone who coveted a property of a woman who lived alone could say very easily in the second millennium, she's a witch. Let's let's investigate her, let's charge her, and I would be given the property of this witch. Thousands of witch trials, which are fully documented in Europe, are telling us those stories. There are excellent books about the witch hunt. Really, hundreds of research uh, scholarly works are available and uh, hundred books at least more on the subject with incredible documentation and explanation. It's hard to us to believe how many women were charged falsely, completely falsely, with associated with the devil, with giving birth to demons with uh, being possession, being uh, in charge of possessions, being associated with devilish actions, affecting all kinds of horrors and troubles, and trial and being persecuted and put to death on fire or by drowning or by hanging. This is a great example of what is misogyny. Fear of women, hatred of women, fear, uh, fear of disobedience of women, fear of independent women, all of that constitute blames of witchcraft, blames of witches, the killing of witches, persecution of witches, laws against witches. It's hard to believe that such an illuminated man like King James, the one who is in charge of the translation of the Bible, which is called King James Bible, 
was haunted by fear of witches. He was sure that every woman around him is a possible witch. He legislated all kinds of laws against witches, and he was very pleased to know that witches are being burned all over England. The same was all over Europe, not only in England, that, as I'm sure you know, in Salem, Massachusetts, women were burned alive not so many centuries ago. The last witch trial in Europe was in Poland in the 18th century, so we're not talking on antiquity. The myth is very antique, the myth is very ancient, but the elaboration on women as Lilith, demons, and witches was part of the modern era. People forget witchcraft and witches are biblical concepts, but witch hunt and witch burning and witch hanging is part of the Renaissance period, not part of antiquity. And as I said, until the 18th century, we had uh, reports on witch trials. What are the differences between speaking of ancient Israelite women and ancient Jewish women? Are the two terms interchangeable? Is there a difference between the biblical period and the Hellenistic or Hasmonean period? Is there a difference between the first temple period and the second temple period? Thank you for this question. That's a good opportunity to explain a common mistake. In the Bible, all the Jews usually, in the first description of them as a nation, they are called Bnei Israel, the sons of Israel. Israel is Jacob. Israel is the biblical na- second biblical name of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So Abraham is the father of the nation, the first ancient father of all the sons of Israel, which are the sons of his grandson. Jacob, who is called Israel after he fought with the angel. That's basic Genesis. Israelites are all the sons of Israel, and that includes sons and daughters, old and young, those who are alive, those who are uh, those who are not alive. All Israelites from the very beginning and the very beginning of the Israelites is the 12 children of Jacob. Only the boys, Dina, his daughter, doesn't count. On all the 12 tribes of Israel, the children of Jacob are the foundation of the uh, nation of Israel that elaborated to begin with in Egypt. When Jacob went down to Egypt with his all his sons, with the exception of Joseph, who was already in Egypt, Jacob went down to Egypt and his children, who were later on enslaved, uh, had many, uh, had uh, multiplied, had many children and grandchildren and grandchildren. Their number was 600,000 when they left the land of Egypt. So they became, they became, they went down to Egypt as a family, of course, a polygamic family. Jacob had two sisters as wives and two servants as uh, as uh, female uh, slaves or partners, which were not his wives, and all of them together bore him 13 children, and 12 of them were boys, and the 12 boys of Jacob with Joseph, they are the fathers of all the Israelites. So where from is the... Uh, from is the name Jews. The word Jews 
comes from the locality. Like all French are from France, all Jews are from Judea, according to this uh, geographical concept. At the Hellenistic period, and not before, people were identified according to the place of their birth. When they, why in the Hellenistic period? Because when you leave your country and you speak another language, the locals are describing you as people who speak another language. Let's say the Hellenistic language is the Greek language. Hellas is Greek. The people who spoke the Greek language from Hellas were called Hellenistic. So it's the language and the loc and the locality which makes for the name of the people. Let's say England is the land of the people who speak English. What is first, the name of the land or the name of the language? We don't know, but the uh, as Hellenistic Greek is the language of the people of Hellas. The people who speak, uh, the people who speak uh, French are the citizens of France or the inhabitants of France, and the people who speak Swedish are the people who live in Sweden. But there is no language which is called Jewish. Okay, our language is called Hebrew, not Jewish. So where is the Jewish people come from? The basic name of the Jews is from Judea. Judea is the area where about Jerusalem is and the hilly mountains of Judea. And the name of the country is after the son of Jacob, Judah, that was given the exclusive right to be the house of the kingdom and the, the family of the Messiah, like Judah, who was a sinner who had apologized and asked forgiveness for his sin was chosen to be the only tribe that uh, the kingdom uh, would come from. So you ask what's the difference between Israelite woman and Jewish woman? Israelite women are in the biblical time. Jewish women are in the Hellenistic time when the Jews defined their own place as Judea rather than the land of Israel. So it's the same people, only it's different names. Because at the first stage, they were not named according to a geographical place, because the Jewish people were formed in Egypt, which was not the, as a nation. The passage from a family to a nation took place in Egypt. The very first time that the word nation is mentioned, it's in the book of Exodus, when God says to Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my people go, my nation or my people, are first mentioned in the first part of Exodus, and we're talking on the people of Israel, on the sons of Israel, on the Israelites. That's the first description of the nation, which is biological, the children of Israel, the sons of Israel was Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. They are calling themselves Jews or being called by other Jews from the land of Judea only in the Hellenistic period when nations were described according to the name of the geographical place where they are coming from. So Jews are people who come from Judea, and Judea is called after Judas, the name of the third son, the third son of Jacob. How was the false messiah Shabtai Tzvi transformative in the history of Jewish women? 
Uh, thank you for this funny question. <laughs> uh, why is it funny? Because usually, uh, Sabbatai Tzvi is remembered as a false messiah, which is wrong. There is no such thing as false messiah. There is a messiah that did not succeed to carry on his messianic ideas. What does it mean, messiah? in the Jewish tradition, I'm talking only on the Jewish tradition, Messiah is an idea, not as a person. And the Messianic idea means that everything could be utterly different. In Hebrew, we say, everything could be utterly different, entirely changing. Now, what was the thing that this particular Messianic figure who said, it's very Argentine, to, it's very urgent time to change everything. What was the everything he wanted to change? He wanted to change the passage from uh, exile to redemption. He said, we can't really live anymore in exile. Exile was so horrible. After the massacres of Chemelnitsky, which started at 1648 and lasted for two decades. They're usually called 1648, 1649, but they actually took place for nearly 20 years, where 774 Jewish communities were completely eradicated. And the description of this horrible disaster had reached Sabbatai Tzvi, who started to, who decided that it's so horrible that now is the time to start the messianic area. In Judaism, we have the idea of messianic birth pangs and messianic, uh, messianic birth pangs are equal to women birth pangs, which when you give birth, it's very painful according to the biblical curse. It's very harsh, it's very, uh, it's very troublesome, it's very painful. But at the very end of the birth pangs, inevitably a baby is born. So the messianic birth pains, Hevlei Mashiach, is the inevitable process that at the end the Messiah would appear. So Shabbat Aitzvi understood the horrors of the Chemelnitsky massacres or the, uh, or the uh, Cossacks' uh, rebellion against the Poles in which hundreds of thousands of Jews were massacred. He understood this uh, war and this uh, revolution as the messianic birth pangs, and he was expecting the messiah to come at the beginning he said i would start to cry to god to remind him that we are waiting for the messiah from the destruction of the temple at the year 70 to the middle of the 17th century please don't forget us please come along and then he started to imagine what would be if he himself would be the Messiah because there was no Messiah from heaven? Then he said, I will read aloud the scroll of lamentation until God would send the Messiah. And he would say, he would sit in his place in Ismail or Saloniki and he would read the scroll of lamentations wrapped with red uh, silk as the Messiah is described in the book of Zohar, book of Star Splendor. And he would urge God to remember the agony, the tragedy. And then he decided that there is no response from heaven. He himself would be the Messiah. What was the first thing he wanted to do? To change the evil, the historical evil of enslavement of women by men. He said, if we start all new, 
let us, let us restart from the scene of Adam and Eve. Let us say we are back into Garden of Eden. What is the first thing we need to correct? We need to correct the punishment that God had inflicted on Eve. And we should say that all men and all women are equal. He, he said in his near in Smyrna, in the uh, year 1665, according to the testimony of a Dutch priest that was teaching there, he said, you poor women, you are miserable women. I came to relieve you from the enslavement of your, of your, to your husbands. In the world that it's about to come, that I bring, you will be equal to everyone. Now, women admired him. He was the first feminist ever known to Jewish women or to any other woman, as far as I'm aware of. He was the first man who said that the beginning of the Messianic era would be freedom of women from their enslavement to their husbands. How much is known about the history of pregnancy in Jewish history? How much is knowable? How much is unknowable? How much is unknown? How much will never be known? About history of pregnancy? Yes. Well, we know one interesting thing, again, from the Bible. Everything starts from the Old Testament, from the Bible. We know that fertility is a divine blessing, and only God is in charge on opening the wombs or closing the wombs or on the capacity to uh, give birth and the capacity to be incapable uh, to give birth or to be uh, infertile or to be barren. Barrenness and fertility are divine decisions according to the book of Genesis, which big part of it is about stories of barren women that their husbands are begging God to open their um, their wombs. And in fact, the story of Abraham, the founder, the first uh, human being, according to the Hebrew story, that his eyes opened to the presence of the divine. The story of Abraham is that he was 100 years old before his son Isaac was born to him. Earlier, he had his son Ishmael born to him from Hagar, the servant, uh, the Egyptian servant that his wife gave him. But Sarah, his wife, gave birth only when she was 90 and he was 100, meaning they were very, very The story is that only God decides who will have children, when children would be born. So it would never be considered a natural course. It is a divine blessing. The idea of life and blessing and death and curse is very fundamental in the Hebrew Bible. And pregnancy was considered to be preconditioned by severe laws of purity and impurity. The divine uh, decision about uh, pregnancy is basic assumption in Jewish law. So you can pray for fertility. You can pray for pregnancy. You can pray for not being barren. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three of them, are praying wholeheartedly and profoundly to the uh, to the God Almighty to bless them with children and to make their women their wives fertile. So pregnancy is always about about a divine blessing, while barrenness is always about divine curse. How do you get divine blessing? How do you 
accept the right to be blessed with children. It's only if you go according to the ways of God. And the ways of God are choosing between the good and the evil, doing, living according to the divine law that would be given in the book of uh, Exodus, instructing you on its ideal way in the Ten Commandments, what you ought to do and what you should refrain from doing. And only those preconditions would bless you with children and continuity and fertility. Of course, again, it's a way of social supervision on things which are being done privately. You don't take it as a natural order, you take it as divine blessing. And in order to get the divine blessing, you ought to keep strict the laws of purity and impurity, which means according to the Jewish law, that you're allowed to engage in sexual relations only in certain days of the month, after counting seven days after the end of the period. So there are days which are uh, promising fertility and there are days which are completely prohibited. This is the basic of all the laws of purity in the Bible. Purity is always a blessing and life. Impurity signifies the opposite, it's death and curse and barrenness. Can you describe the history of women's roles in the Jewish printing and publishing industries? Can you comment on the extent of female involvement in Jewish presses? How much is known about female printers and female copyists? Thank you for the question, which enables me to balance a bit my previous discussion on the complete illiteracy of most of Jewish women. There were women who were taught to read and write. And as I indicated before, first and foremost, those would be daughters of bankers and of printers. Banking was an engagement of Jews in Germany along the two uh, sides of the Rhinus River, the Rhein, Rhineland, Jews were invited to work with small lending of money to the locals who need money at the time where they would have no revenue and no income. In the area of the Brainus, it's a very good area for uh, growing wine. The problem with wine is that uh, growing a vine where what you make wine from. The problem with grapes of wine is that it takes long time between the time you plant them and the time that you can collect the fruit. It takes long time. At the time between planting and harvesting, you have no revenue. The Jews were asked to give small loans to the local farmers, the Christian local farmers, so they would be able to live until they would have revenues from the collecting of the grapes. The Jews agreed, and they only asked that one land of the different uh, grape fields, the different uh, vine uh, fields, would be kept for them to handle so they would be able to have their wine according to Jewish laws. They said we will wait patiently until the years would pass and you would have the uh, you would have the money to bring back your uh, loans. 
we would write the loans. We would write all the uh, agreement about it because we are talking on long spans of uh, time. And our daughters would be helping us. So the first Jews who taught their daughters to read and write were the Jews of Germany, the Ashkenazi Jews. The Ashkenazi is the uh, Yiddish name or the Jewish name for Germany. Ashkenazi Jews, Jews who live along the Rhineland, Elsass-Lorraine on one side, the area of uh, the area of Worms and Spira and Magenta, Mainz, Spire, Worms today. That's where the Jews lived. That's where the Jews were doing small banking of small loans with small interest to the local uh, farmers. And in order to arrange all this banking system or pawnery system, if you didn't have if you didn't have money to return, you can bring some value, some value of property, some object of value or some property of value as a pawn until you would be able to return the loan. The men were traveling from time to time and the women were at home and the daughters were at home. So the women would be uh, educated in a way that they would be able to write down the name of the local uh, person who took the loan or the name of the local inhabitant who uh, brought the pawn. And in order to do the writing and the registering and the tax payment, uh, they had to learn to read and write. So the first Jewish girls who were taught by their fathers to read and write were the Jews of Ashkenaz who were using the daughters for help in registering, writing, returning, calculating, and doing everything that you do when you give money or return money or give loans and return. So this is the beginning of uh, this is the beginning of uh, reading and writing for women. The what was the other part of the question? What role did female printers and copyists play in the history of Jewish presses? Thank you very much. So the women who learned to write helped their husbands to do writing not only of uh, not only of the day-to-day uh, -day business they would help them in reading and writing of the holy uh, of the holy writings not by writing but by reading aloud what is the written text that should be copied only men would copy Usually, there are a few exceptions, but most men, mo mo more often than not, only men would write the Holy Scriptures, but women who know to read could read aloud to them. Now, when printing press came to our life, the Jews considered that as a divine blessing, and they understood that what before was very expensive because every manuscript is uh, handmade, that is the meaning of manuscript. Manners are hands and script is writing. Every manuscript was man-made or woman-made and it was very, very expensive and it was unique. When the invention of print came to life in the middle of the 15th century by Johannes Gutenberg, the Jews immediately adopted it and uh, pre adopted the principle prepared the Hebrew letters, unlike the Latin letters that Gutenberg used. And the first book he printed was the Bible, of course. And the Jews uh, designed Hebrew letters. 
and set the printing press by little letters. Now, little hands are very relevant for little letters to put into the printing press in order to print. The daughters of printers, who were people who before were scribes, were copyists of books, would teach their daughters to help them in reading and writing. And there are many daughters of printers that were described in search by people like Avraham Ya'ari and Uberman and other scholars of the printing press in Hebrew. And they made the list of hundreds of girls and daughters who were printers themselves, daughters of printers, and those that brought to press very, very complicated books that you need high intelligence and high technical capacity to put them into press. So I think that the connection between the writing and the writing of scriptures that Jewish men were always involved with and the teaching of the daughters of scribes to be capable printers was of great importance because daughters were not allowed to copy the Bible, but they were allowed very much to set the letters of the printing press in order to print the Bible. So as soon as there were women who were allowed to read and write, like daughters of printers and daughters of scribes and daughters of bankers, then there would be the Jewish community of Ashkenaz, I'm talking now only on the German uh, origin, German, the two sides of the Rhine River, the Elsass-Lorraine and the uh, German land, they were the beginning of the uh, literate women, and their daughters were also literate, and their granddaughters as well. They would appreciate very much the first opportunity for Jewish women to learn to read and later to write and later to print and later to acquire knowledge of arranging books and editing them and correcting them. And they would be they would be uh, also coming, I forgot to say before, they would be coming at the beginning from the Italian Jewish community who also chose to teach their daughters to learn. The first Jews in Germany came from Italy according to the invitation of Karl the Great who wanted, uh, who wanted Jews to come to uh, dwell in his land in order to teach them how to learn to read and write the children and then uh, to engage in, uh, in uh, loans for the local farmers who need uh, long-term long, uh, loans. So the Jewish community of Italy and the Jewish community of the Rhineland and the Zestowin were the two Jewish communities that taught their daughters to read and write in different historical periods in the second millennium, and they would be the exception. Most other Jewish communities who did not derive from the Italian Jewish community and from the uh, German Jewish and the Zaslowen Jewish community would not teach their daughters to read and write, and they would not be engaged in printing or in uh, or in uh, book setting, pets, or in so forth. Okay. Are Jewish women's history and Israeli women's history one and the same thing? Should they be considered different and separate? To what degree are they interchangeable? To what degree should they be kept apart? Well, all Israeli history is connected to Jewish history 
of course, as well as to Muslim history and Christian history, because in the land of Israel, currently in the state of Israel, we have Jews, Christians, Muslims, each one of his own religion, each one of his own culture, each one of his own history. So current Israeli women are engaged in multicultural, multilingual, multi-historical uh, uh, circumstances from a point of view of equality and of democratic state. At least that was the idea. We're not only we didn't always succeed to incarnate this ideal, but the ideal of the Jewish state when it was established in 1948 in the Declaration of Independence was that all men and women and all inhabitants, Jews, Arabs, Christians, and any other religion, are all equal according to the laws of the state of Israel. There was one exception, unfortunate exception. All personal laws had to be according to religious law. So if you're a Christian, your marriage and divorce are according to Christian laws and Catholic and uh, Protestants and others have, of course, different particular religious laws. And if you're a Christian or if you're a Muslim, you have the Sharia law. If you are a Jew, you have the Halachic law. So while all citizens are equal, Jewish women or Christian women or Muslim women are subjugated to the religious laws of the Halakha, where they are inferior, subjugated, and discriminated in a very severe way. This is a very saint failure of the state of Israel that did not manage to separate between church and state, or between religion and nation, or between religious law. Uh, which should be taken only by choice and equal democratic law, which should be uh, imposed equally on everyone. We don't have this yet. We hope to have it soon. But all of the women in Israel, Jews, non-Jews alike, are subjugated to a democratic law until it comes to the personal law. Now, what is Israelite? What is Jewish woman? Until the year 1948, all Jewish women lived as a minority, either under British mandate or under Osman rule or under Christian rule or under Muslim rule. There were no independent, sovereign, democratic Jewish women before the 20th century. Only in the 20th century, when the Jews started to come back to the state of Israel as secular Jews, and let me under, under uh, uh, underline it, when the Zionist movement started, it was a secular movement, and according to the Zionist Congress and the Zionist movement, men and women are equal. That was important. It was before the American woman had the right to vote. It was before the English woman had the right to vote. According to the Zionist agenda and the Zionist Congress and the Zionist Declaration, men and women are equal. But in the state of Israel today, the religious law really uh, erase the Zionist intention because of various political reasons. So Jewish women before were subjugated twice to the local uh, religious national locality where they live. Let's say Jewish women who lived in Muslim land had to go covered exactly as Muslim. Jewish women who lived in Christian lands were expected to dress or to behave according to the norms of the Christian law. 
Jewish uh, women in Israel are not expected to behave as Muslim or as Christians. They behave as Jews and as Israelites, as secular or as their religious as they choose. So the key word is choice. Jewish women never had a choice. They were subjugated by Jewish halakhic rabbinical law, by Jewish biblical law, and by the local law and norms of the different localities where they live. Jewish women in Israel today are subjugated to the Jewish rabbinical law, but they are equal under the other democratic law. As we bring our conversation today to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book? That's a surprise. Where my time and attention were gone since completing this book. Well, I devoted a jubilee from the year 1969 to the year 218 to study and research of the history of the Jewish people, the Jewish intellectual history, Jewish social history, and their meeting point with the different localities where Jews live. At the same time, I'm a great lover of Hebrew literature, world literature, poetry, law, not history, but literature at large. So the most time of my, uh, most time of the, the past since uh, my book was printed in Hebrew in 2018, was devoted to the translation of the book by my admired translator, Mr. Shmuel Gertel Salmoneta, who translated the book from Hebrew into English, and I edited and checked, obviously, and corrected everything to the best precision, but the translation as it is. And other than working very hard for five years on the translation, I was enjoying myself reading literature and poetry of the world at large and of the Israeli writers in particular. And that was a kind of a journey that I didn't have time to engage in before I finished my Jubilee of Scholarship. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for your generous and erudite responses throughout the course of our dialogue today. Thank you for such a meaningful experience, and thank you for the blessing of your time. Thank you so very much for your very intelligent questions and very engaging conversation. It was really a joy to speak with you. Thank you so very much. If I may add one more thing uh, to the question that you asked me before, other than reading and writing, which I'm always engaged in, I am also publicly active as a feminist on online and in public lectures and public writing, I'm devoting a significant amount of time to explain to people on various chapters of Jewish history at large, and in particular, uh, particular emphasize on the history of Jewish women in different periods of world history. So that is another thing that I'm doing in the last uh, let's say, in the last five years in a greater excess that I've done before. So again, thank you so very much for letting me introduce my work and my ideas, and I hope that any reader of any culture and language would find interest in reading about women history at large and Jewish women history in particular. Thank you so very much. Thank you. As we end today, I'm signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalat, 
your host today on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. Today, I have been in dialogue with Professor Emerita Rachel Elior. She is the John and Golda Cohen Chair in Jewish Philosophy in the Department of Jewish Thought in the Institute of Jewish Studies at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. We have been in dialogue today regarding her newly published book, The Unknown History of Jewish Women Through the Ages, on Learning and Illiteracy, on Slavery and Literacy, published in Berlin by De Gruyter Publishers, 2023. Thank you. Thank you very much.